Early in the 1980s, a teenage young man by the name of Rick, Rick Astley forms a band by the name of FBI. They start playing small clubs in North England, and one night they're playing a gig, and there are three legendary producers that are in the audience. They see Rick Astley on stage. He's 16 years old at the time, and they think, man, this, this young man He's got the moves, you know, he's right here all day long, but he's got the voice of a full-grown man. I mean, he's 16 years old, he sounds like he's 35, and not only 35, but 35, and probably been through some things. And so what do they do? They sign him. A few days later, they sign him, they make him ditch his buddies, they're like, all right, you guys, they're, they were all right, but they were just, you were carrying them, and so the load is lifted off of your back, and so these three legendary producers, they just started their new music production studio, they bring Rick on, early, early on in his career, they're focusing on other um, artists that they just signed, um, I forgot the name of the band, but You Spin Me Right Round, Baby Right Round, was this this new production agency's first number one hit. And so they're like, hey, this song is just blowing up. Rick, if you'll just kind of sit on the back burner over here. He's like, you know what, guys? I know, I know I got this voice and I know I've got this talent and this passion. I will happily sit in the background and just wait for my time to shine in the spotlight. And so what they had Rick do is Rick just lived with one of the producers that worked there and he just made sandwiches and tea because it was England and they don't know the sweet life of coffee. And so <laughs> he finally got his time in the spotlight. His first track ever was a song called When You Gonna. Anybody ever heard of that song? Yeah, I don't think Rick even heard that song. He, uh, he was on that track guest vocaling with a woman by the name of Lisa Carter that was not a hit. But the second track, you know, he had some gumption. He was going to stick it out. The second track, Never Gonna Give You Up. The thing with Rick Astley is that he just has something about this word gonna, all right? So Never Gonna <laughs> Give You Up was a number one single in the U.S. and in the U.K., Really, people only care if it's number one in the U.S. And so he was a hit. His career kicked off. He sold tens of millions of records. He collabed with Sir Elton John. And I don't know what song he collaborated on. I just know it wasn't Benny and the Jets. <laughs> he was a millionaire at the age of 24. He retired at the age of 27. He had an existential crisis in his life, and he just dropped the whole celebrity scene, and he went to raise his daughter. He said, I'm going to raise my daughter right. And so he went and he raised his daughter in a cabin. And then, after years of retirement, then, in 2008, which, by the way, way earlier than I thought it actually happened, in 2008, the very first Rickroll took place. Now, there's a lot of mysterious, magical things in this turn of events that came to be the Rickroll, but basically what a Rickroll was is a bait-and-switch method of creating a hyperlink that was linked to something that somebody really wanted to know something about, and when they clicked on it, well, it didn't go to the thing they thought they were going to go see and learn more about. Instead, it went straight to a YouTube video of Rick Astley, never going to give you up, never going to that. That's the Carlton. That's, I don't know, snapping and moving. <laughs> Dancing is not my forte. Across the internet, people started seeing 
Rick Astley singing Never Gonna Give You Up. People were getting rickrolled left and right. By the end of 2008, there was a survey taken, and over 18 million Americans have been rickrolled. That's a lot. Anybody here ever been rickrolled outside of this morning? You can all raise your hands after the day, but ever, anybody ever rickrolled before this morning? Okay, all right. We're being shy. I think there's more people than that. Maybe you just forgot. It didn't impact your life like it did me. That's fine. In 2015, there is a huge resurgence. Rick Astley is now on tour. He, is, he left his cabin and he has ridden this wave the entire time. And every time he's been asked about it, any interview um, that I watched in deep preparation and study for this sermon today, <laughs> he was just chill, man. He never once got upset. He never got tired of being known for that one song. He was just cool with it. I think that's probably the, the key to his success. But today, I think there's a similar theme in scripture. I think King David is waiting for God to move and he's looking for God to move in many different ways in his life. And all of these different complex emotions that King David is feel, feeling today that we're going to cover in Psalm 25, I think he comes up to that point where he's asking this question of, God, where are you? And it's almost like King David is getting rickrolled Old Testament style because every time what he comes up with is that God's never going to give him up. God's never going to let him down. God's never going to run around. God's never going to desert him. And it's Rick Astley, so you got to say gonna a whole lot. So without any further ado, Psalms 25, verses 1 through 3. Don't worry, you're not getting off the hook that easy. We're doing every single verse in this bad boy. Psalm 25, to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. Oh my God, I, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exult over me. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. But they shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. First point this morning, if you're taking notes, or if you're not, God will not leave you at the altar. God will not leave you at the altar. David writes, let me not be put to shame. Being put to shame is something that goes so much deeper than just a surface level glance at this scripture. What David is writing about is something that is more than humility. It is something that is more than rejection. It's something that is more than embarrassment. This is complete and utter devastation. God, do not devastate me. God, do not leave me at the altar. God, I am looking to you. God, I need you. Show up for me. But why is David concerned that God is going to devastate him? There's two things, two things that we'll see reoccurring throughout the scripture again today. As David sees his own sin. David sees the depths of the sin in his life. And he is just wondering, when will God realize it? Now, surely, of course, God has already realized it. But God is being gracious. God is being patient with David's sin. Second thing is David's enemies absolutely hate him. And he knows without God's protection on his life that David is absolutely going to be done for. So what does David do? It's not something that you and I would do, because I know a lot of you. But David waits. And I think the thing that you and I would do is start to work. We'd start to strive. 
But what David does is he patiently waits on the Lord. He realizes that God is faithful. He realizes that God can be relied upon. And I think for us, we need to wait on the Lord too. Instead of just rushing out ahead, God, there's something that I can't put words to in my life. I can't quite articulate this way that I'm feeling. God, I know you're calling me into something else. I can't quite put words to that. I don't quite know what that is, but I'm just going to run out ahead, and hopefully you'll meet me on the other side of this thing. I'm just going to run out. I'm going to make a whole lot of messes, and hopefully you'll be there to clean them up when you meet me there. I think we could pull a page out of David's book, and we could say, no, I'm going to wait on the Lord. And it's never going to be easy. It's never easy to sit around and just twiddle your thumbs and feel like you're not doing anything. I think a lot of times we try to take the work of God and put it on our own backs, but we're supposed to take the yoke, the burden of Jesus, which is kind, which is light as he takes ours. And so today, David gives us four different points on how to wait. The first and our second point today is that we wait in obedience. Make me to know your ways, O Lord. This is verse 4. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. For you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. What we see here is that it's not waiting for God if we're not willing to be obedient. There's a lot of things in our lives that we're wanting to wait on God for, that we're needing to wait on God for. I'm sorry, we don't want to wait on God for anything. We want it now, now, now. Yesterday would have been good. God, if you could just work ahead. But as we're waiting on God, we're called to be obedient to God. But it is not waiting properly if we're not being obedient. See, disobedience is moving forward without God. Disobedience is moving forward in wickedness. It's saying, God, you figure this out. I'm going to go have fun. Once you get this figured out, I'll come back, and then you tell me what to do. But God says, stay put. And most importantly, Jesus says, stay obedient. When you flip over to the New Testament in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 6, verses 4, 46 through 49, Luke writes, and Jesus says, Why do you call me, Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been built well. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell and the ruin of that house was great. So as we are waiting, as we are being obedient to God, are we building our house on the rock? Are we building it on a solid foundation that no matter what comes against it, it will stand? Or are we just going off, doing whatever we want, whatever our heart's desire is, falling into a life of sin, falling into this temptation, that temptation, or just completely ignorant to God altogether and building our house on sand? If there's one thing I've learned over the past, goodness, almost four years now, two and a half years of worship services being the pastor of this church is that it's not is a storm going to come. It's when is the next storm going to show up. If you're just coming out of one, get ready for the one you're about to go into. If you're just going into one, we'll get ready. Hopefully it'll be over soon. But this is why we have to build our house on a firm foundation. 
This is why we have to stay obedient as we wait for God to work in our life to deliver us from the storm that we're in. What we can see here in the scriptures, this is actually a complete reversal of what we learned of the pattern of the wicked man and the life of sin last week in Psalm 10. The process of the wicked is that wickedness starts as a thought in your head. Then it holds your heart and your mind captive. Then once it works its way from your head to your heart and your heart has been deceived, it goes from your heart to your tongue and you start to voice these things, your speech, you start to curse, you start to swear, you start to be negative. It's all doom. It's all gloom. There is not an ounce of hope, light, or salt in you. You go from being Jesus around other people to being the voice of doom, and it goes from your speech to your actions. The process of obedience is twofold. Two steps here. The first is that obedience requires commitment. We set our minds to be committed to the process of obedience in our lives. That is saying yes to God. That is saying no to sin. When we see David, David is waiting, ready to learn God's ways. He is waiting, ready to learn from God's paths, to travel down those paths. And his heart and his mind are open, and he is ready and willing to learn. Do we hold that same posture? As we wait, as we are staying obedient, are we staying committed to learning from God. The second is that obedience requires teaching. Teaching means we have to learn something. If we're going to learn something, that means we have to get uncomfortable because learning new things isn't easy. I've heard the older you get. I haven't seen any old people here today, just in case you're wondering. I've heard that it gets harder and harder because you're more and more resistant against learning new things. And so if we are going to learn, that means we are going to be taught. If we're going to be taught, that means we have to humble ourselves. And we have to see that the God of our salvation has something that he wants to teach us. We must depend on his teaching. The problem is if we don't depend on his teaching, we're going to depend on the teaching of someone or something else, or we're going to just rely on the state of our hearts. And as we see in Romans 7, 18, Psalm 14, 2, and 3, our hearts are not good. Our hearts have been cursed by the fall of man, by the wickedness, by the sin that is in this world. We cannot rely on what we desire, what we want to do. We have to rely on God himself. And so we have to allow him to teach us as we wait in obedience. Third point, we wait in confession. And we can break this down in verses 6 and 7, 8 through 10, and verse 11. Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, for they have been been from of old. My whole life you've watched over me. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me. For the sake of your goodness, O Lord. So now what David is doing here in verses 6 and 7, he is talking directly to God. And this is a confession time. And what we see about confession is confession requires grace. And he's asking God two things. Remember this. And he, he words it really weird. Remember this, but remember not. So remember this, God, and forget this. Remember how good you are. God, remember your mercy. This word mercy in Hebrew, it means womb, all right? So God's mercy is like the gentle, compassionate love of a mother. Remember, God, how good you were. Remember how good you've been to me. 
Remember how good you've been to my people. Remember, you brought us out from Egypt, from wandering to Egypt, from Egypt into the wilderness. You saw us through the wilderness into the promised land, from the promised land to establishing a kingdom, and you have established me as your king. Remember how good you have been to me as you confess your sin. Remember how good God has been to you. Remember he is not waiting upstairs ready to swatch you with a belt. He's not waiting to strike you with lightning. He has been good to you. On this side of things, in the New Testament, under the new covenant, your sin has been forgiven by the work of Jesus on the cross. He's been patient. He's been merciful. And then David swings into something I think we've probably all prayed quite a bit. God, remember this. But God, forget this. And God, what I'm asking you to forget is how bad I've been. God, forgive me for what I have done. This word steadfast, it means till death do us part. God, your love is steadfast. Remember me. This is love in terms of marriage. This is love that is covenantal. This is remember the vows you have made to me kind of love that David is asking God, just forget my sins. I don't know about you. I have a lot of sin in my life that I need God to forget. And I'm asking God to forget but I also know that there's a lot of sin in my life, every single one that I could ever sin and know about, every single sin that I could sin and not even know about, that Jesus saw and he still chose to take the cross for me. So as we consider our sin, as we confess our sin, I would say watch out for a strategy of the enemy, which is to bring wickedness, to bring shame, to bring guilt on top of what we already feel bad about what we've done in the past, what we did this morning before we came to church, what we said about the car in front of us when they cut us off on the way getting off the 303 on the 60. I don't know. It happens a lot. (laughs) Chances are we got some sin we need to deal with. Don't let the devil, don't let the enemy compound that sin. You have been forgiven. Guilt and shame is from the enemy. Conviction is from the Spirit. When you feel convicted, you repent of that sin, you turn from that sin, you make a plan not to commit that sin again, and you run your tail off in the opposite direction. That's repentance. We live in repentance. Verses 8 through 10. Good and upright is the Lord, therefore he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast, love, and faithfulness for those who keep his commandment or his covenant and his testimonies. Now, David has gone from talking straight to God in verses 6 through 7 to now he has turned to us, the readers, and now he's giving us a lesson which shows us that confession requires instruction. David turns to us and he gives us a lesson on God. He says that God is good. God doesn't have to humble himself to get down on our level to talk to us, but God doesn't Anyway, God is so good that not only does he get down on our level to deal with our sin, but he also teaches us all because he is good, even though we are still sinners. You see, it is because of God's goodness and his perfection that he could not be in the presence of sin. Therefore, somebody, something, Jesus, fully God, fully man, had to die as the perfect sacrifice. 
to take our sin upon him so that when he took the cross, he died with our sin. And when he rose from the dead, he was victorious over sin, the enemy, and death. What that means is now when God looks at us, when you put your faith in Jesus to save you from your sin, God doesn't see your sin because Jesus took that sin. And instead, what you got was his righteousness. So now the relationship that we have with God has been made right by the work of Jesus because of the righteousness he has given to us. Why? Because he is good. Because he loves sinners. Because he is gracious. Because he is merciful. And what does David say to do? Man, stay humble. Stay humble. You've been forgiven. You're not sinless. You're going to need a lot more forgiveness. Let's not think we have it all together now. Let's not get self-righteous. Stay humble. Because God teaches those that realize their sin. And if you're going to continue to take inventory of the sin in your life, you're going to need to stay humble. Stay humble. Because God leads those that are dependent on him. A few years back, it might have been more than a few. It might have been like six. I don't really know how many a few is, but you can say that. You can get away with it most of the time. I was on a snowboard trip, okay? It was really a ski trip, but I never learned how to ski. I learned how to snowboard. Everybody else was on skis. It seemed like they were having a much better time. Um, I wasn't in, like, great shape. I look a lot like I do now, okay? So if you imagine all of this and a ski bib and a snowboard, that's a whole lot going down a mountain, okay? I'm going down this mountain. It's me and one of the students that Jacob and I had in student ministry growing up. His name's Matty G. It's not his real name, legally. His name's Matthew Gerlach. He's a cool guy. He's a great skier. We're going down a blue course, but it seemed like a triple black diamond to me. Um, I'm a leader, okay? And so I was out front, okay? And so uh, I didn't know this trail, this course. I had never snowboarded it in my life. First time down it all day. We had been snowboarding for two days straight now. I'm not a super athlete. There was a lot of lactic acid buildup in my body. I was very sore. 30s were coming quick, okay? 20s were well behind me. I was in pain. It was the end of the day on the second day. It comes time, the, the trail split into two different areas. I had to make a decision. I made the decision. I went to the right. As I went to the right, I quickly realized there was no decision to make. There was only one trail to go down. This is out of bounds. I quickly fell into 72 inches of snow, snowboard first. All right, remember, a lot of weight on a loose powder. Weight goes down, powder stays up, okay? I am now trapped in 72 inches deep hole with a snowboard stuck to my feet. I don't know how I'm going to get out of here. I start trying to crawl, crawl my way out, and my body just goes into full cramp. Dear Lord, I'm going to die here. And then out of nowhere comes Maddie G. Swing, 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 swing. Oh, hey, bud. You need some help there? No, dude, just leave me here to die. This is so embarrassing. He then puts his ski pole down in the hole, and he pulls me out. He helps drag me and a snowboard hanging off of one foot and my fully cramped body back on the trail and shows me the way to go. In that moment, I'm going to say he humbled himself to save my life. I had veered off course. I had fallen into something. I had gotten way in over my head. I needed a rescue. Otherwise, I was going to be a popsicle for some bear later that night. <laughs> he reached down into my situation. 
with a ski pole and he saved me. This is the exact same thing God does with our sin over and over and over. When we veer off course, we think, you know what, this is the way I need to go. It's not the way God intended. And when we fall down 72 inches deep into snow with the snowboard stuck under all that powder and we can't go anywhere and we start full body cramping because of the consequences of our sin, God reaches a ski pole in in the form of Jesus and he lifts us out of the mud, out of the mire. He is the one that saves us. He pulls us back on the trail. He sets us down the right path and says, hey, maybe let's not do that again. And then we take the next right that wasn't supposed to be a right, and it's rinse and repeat over and over in Jesus. Why? It's just like his character. God's path, they won't give you up. They won't let you down. They won't run around. They won't desert you. So what do we do? Because of God's character, we remain obedient. We don't stray from the course, from the path. We stay on trail brings us to verse 11. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. What this shows us is that confession requires forgiveness. Sometimes we go to God and we only ask God to forgive us of the small sin in our life because we're hoping that maybe because of the span of time from the big sin in our life, maybe he's just forgotten that. Maybe that's been taken care of. We bring everything to God. Small sin, big sin, secret sin, public sin, pet sin, addictive sin, sin you don't even think is a big deal, things that you may be convicted about but you're not really sure and you haven't read it in the Bible yet, but every time you do it, the Holy Spirit gives you a bad feeling, you bring that to the Lord as well. David does this over and over and over. David lays every single thing out, big, small, intentional or not, and he asks God to forget it. An Old Testament way of saying, God, forgive it. He wants a clean slate. And that's exactly what we need as his followers today. So we wait in confession. Fourth point, we wait in fear. Verse 12 through 15, who is the, who is the man who fears the Lord? Him will he instruct in the way that he should choose. David starts writing like he's Yoda here, okay? You notice that? What are we doing here, man? I'm not a Jedi. I can't read this. Okay. We're back in. Verse 13, his soul shall abide in well-being, and his offspring shall inherit the land. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him, and he makes known to them his covenant. My eyes are ever toward the Lord, for he will pluck my feet out of the net. Some people, some people receive forgiveness, and they run back into sin. But as believers, we do not continue to sin even more so that grace may abound more. Paul writes that in Romans 6, verse 1. We stay away from sin. And yes, you will accidentally sin, but we stay away from intentional, habitual, addictive sin. Why? Because we are forgiven. And when it says that we live in fear, that just means that we live in a deep respect for the Lord. I was talking to a new friend last week. The difference of ways that they were raised up in the church and differences in, in what we believe and know to be true in the word of God. And that is that this one kind of fear in the Lord is that I'm scared of God. 
And because I'm scared of God, then I have to work my way up to God. That is works-based salvation, and that is not what the Bible says that we are all about. There's nothing that we could do ever to earn enough righteousness, enough goodness, enough good deeds, enough good works to ever be good enough to stand before God. And so what we do as Jesus-following believers is we rely on the work of Jesus. That's what gets us righteousness before God. There is nothing that we could ever do to earn it, nothing we could ever do to get there. So we rely on the work of Jesus. And after we have gotten there, we live the rest of our life doing good things, things that look like good deeds, good works. But that's not so that we can stay saved. It's because that we have been saved. It is out of a deep respect looking back to the work of Jesus on the cross and the work of Jesus making us righteous before God that we do those things. It is out of a deep appreciation. It is out of a deep respect. So, What happens when we fear God, when we stay living life in a deep respect, a deep appreciation, a deep love for God? He becomes our friend. He makes his way known to us, and we watch him, and he continues to save us day in and day out. Point five, we wait in prayer. Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distress. Consider my affliction and my trouble and forgive all of my sins. Now, every single thing that David lists off here is internal. These are things that are taking place in him interpersonally. And then, verse 19 through 21, everything then goes externally. Consider how many are my foes. And with what violent hatred they hate me. Oh, guard my soul and deliver me. Let me not be put to shame, for I take refuge in you. May integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. As we wait for God to move in our lives, we continue to press the refresh button in the top right corner of our search engine bar, a little URL, We keep hitting refresh over and over and over. We keep God up to date on what is going on in our lives. Again, verse 16 through 18. Here is what is going on inside of me, God. As I'm waiting for you to move and I'm looking out here for you to do it, you need to know what's going on with me. This is part of this relationship. You don't just read my mind, know, and then go and do it. No, God, this is a cooperative relationship. And so I talk to you, we communicate, I listen to what you say back to me through the Holy Spirit inside of me, and I stay obedient, I keep confessing, I live in fear, and now I'm living in prayer. I keep coming back to you, keep pressing refresh. God, this is how I feel. God, this is what's going on in this crazy, messed up head of mine. This is what I have done. And God, this is why I need you. But it doesn't just stay inside of what's going on in David's life. It goes external, 19 through 21. Here is the situation that I am in, God. Here is how these people feel about me. Here's how that coworker slandered me. Here's what my son said about me. Here's what my uncle said about me. Here's what my boss thinks about me. They're trying to get me fired. This guy's coming after my job. This is what they want to do to me. And it doesn't end there. God, this is what I need from you. We started talking about it last week. We're going to continue on as we work our way through the Psalms through the rest of this series. We need to be 
deeply transparent, deeply genuine and authentic in our prayer life with God. He died for all that sin. He died for that crazy, messed up person that's praying to him. Jesus died so that he could put you back together. Jesus died so that you could have hope, so you could have peace, so that you could have comfort in every single one of these things that you are praying about. Jesus died so that he could be present with you and walk with you through them. Do not hold back from God. Give him everything. I don't care if it's dark. I don't care if it's dirty. I don't care if it's awkward. I don't care if you just don't know how to say it. Give it to the Lord. And then David says something that I think we can all relate to. And he prays for his people. He says, God, it's not just me. You think I'm messed up, God? Look at all these jacked up people around me. Verse 22, redeem Israel, O God, out of all his troubles. That means, yeah, they want to come after me. They want to hurt me. They want to kill me. But they also want to come after your people, God. Would you save your people? God, you see all of this sin in me? But I know you see every ounce of sin in every single other person. Would you save us from this? It's not just me. It's all of us. We're all in this same boat. You will not leave us at the altar. Again, he'll never give you up. He'll never let you down. He'll never run around. He'll never desert you. How do we take that and walk out of the doors with something we can apply today? We be the church and we display the kingdom by trusting in the Lord to be there. After we've trusted in the Lord to be there, we wait patiently. And I hope this sounds like a recap because it is. As we wait patiently, we wait in obedience. We wait in confession. We wait in fear. And we wait in prayer. Let's go to God right now.